BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Today's show is brought to you by us, the Choose Yourself Network. One of the most common questions covered on that podcast and by our guests is about self-publishing. James has written a lot on the topic and sold hundreds of thousands of books by leaving the traditional publishers behind. It takes a little guts to take on that risk, but James has narrowed all of the secrets of self-publishing your own bestseller into a single checklist. You can get it at www.jamesaltucher.com bestseller. If you're thinking about writing or just want to publish your own ideas, it's a must read. Check it out today at jamesaltucher.com slash bestsellers and download your free guide. That's jamesaltucher.com backslash bestseller, B-E-S-T-S-E-L-L-E-R. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I have Oliver Berkman with me. Oliver, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Oliver, I wanted you to come onto this pod. I've actually wanted you on for the past year or, or more. When, when, did, when did we first meet? Uh, it's more than a year ago now. I think it must be year and a half too. Yeah. Yeah. It was right after you came out with the book, the antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. And you basically break down the whole self-help industry. And along the way you met and interviewed, uh, and you read from the authors of many people, many of the same authors that I had read and met or interviewed or whoever. And I was really interested in some of your experiences. I think I am. Um, I tried to get you to read my book and you emailed that you'd already read it, which is the most kind of perfect, uh, you know, it's, it's good when that happens, when you think someone's going to be interested and they already were. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's interesting because what I want to do is I want to kind of go over what self-help help is, what do people expect from it? What works, what you think works in it? But first, in your subtitle, your subtitle is happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. And so I kind of want to define those terms in, in your view or, or, or why you have that in the subtitle other than that's what the publisher told you to do. <laughs> no, this, this, that subtitle I brought to this, uh, to this party. I'd been thinking about this for a very long time. I've been writing this column in The Guardian, which, you know, the, the original idea, it's changed a bit, but the original idea was to try to sort the wheat from the chaff in, in the self-help industry. Did, did very- you ever, and I'm sorry to interrupt, I'm always going to interrupt, but yeah. did, you, did you have um, an opinion beforehand about 
a blanket opinion about the entire category of self-help, even though we know now it's divided into lots of different little categories. Did you, prior to researching this book, have a, a, a blanket general opinion? I had a blanket ambivalence. Let me explain that. I mean, I, I maybe this is a British thing. I don't know. On the, I, I have it's two, a British thing. I had two opinions simultaneously. One is... That's definitely this, a British thing. Yeah. One is this stuff is just embarrassing. It's ridiculous. It's entertaining to laugh at it. Never be seen dead reading it. And the other at the same time is like, well, actually, you know, like if any of those promises were on the covers of these books were, were true, I kind of would do, do kind of want that. I kind of would like to be more productive and a bit happier and, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of, um, I think obviously mockery is always partly a defense, uh, a defense mechanism. So I just wanted to sort of plunge into this idea and say, well, look, okay, clearly there is a huge amount of BS here. And, and yet I don't want to have to accept that wanting to be happier is, is BS or that, or that, you know, the whole idea of improvement is somehow has to be thrown out. And, um, and what I really came down to, I can talk more about it, but you know, I think what really does not work in almost any circumstance is, is what I define as, as positive thinking, which is not optimism or being a happy soul or anything like that, but this, this conscious and explicit effort to control your emotions using your will, to bring about your goals by making really, really intense, clear, specific goals and just relentlessly driving through at them. But basically, you can really try too hard to be but, happy or successful. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate in two ways. One way is you can say visualization or positive visualization is similar to positive thinking. So take a book like uh, The Inner Game of Tennis or The Inner Game of Golf, where the authors suggest before I serve the tennis ball, visualize in detail everything that is happening in the shot and, you know, assume the perfect serve and visualize it completely and then serve. So that's one kind of form of positive thinking. The other is, let's say I think to myself, oh, I want to write a novel. And then the first impulse that comes to me is, uh, I can't write a novel. I'm raising a family. I have a full-time job. I have no, I need time, downtime. I can't do that. Isn't in both cases, or in that particular case, wouldn't it be better for me to think positively, well, okay, maybe I can do this and I'm going to figure it out. I know I can do this, so I'm going to figure it out. Or And in the positive visualization case, does, isn't that proven to help, you know, in sports, for instance? Uh, they're both really, really interesting, good points. I mean, I'll, I'll take the maybe, maybe the last one first. What I really tried to do in this book after a couple of chapters at the beginning, sort of demolishing what I think doesn't work, is to offer a constructive alternative, you know, and it's all to do with getting more familiar with failure and friendly with uncertainty and being able to go forward without knowing exactly where you're going at every time. I think that the second case, you know, not feeling good about, about your ability to, to do something like write a novel, um, that's a great example where what really works in my experience, and I think the, the research backs me up, but anyway, from my experience, is not then trying to eradicate those negative thoughts, trying to sort of forcibly remove them from your mind and replace them with thoughts about what a sensational novelist you're going to be. It's much more about being able to just coexist with all those thoughts and act anyway. You know, it's much more about not being pushed around by thought. And when you, and when you do completely commit to this kind of very cliched philosophy of positive thinking, the only thing you can do with those negative thoughts is like fight them and treat them as an enemy and, and spend your whole time, you know, trying to condition your, your mental state in some perfect way. And it just like 
basically just never works. The, the what works is taking some action, taking some step, and then you find that the emotions tend to follow on. The, the visualization thing is, is really interesting because, of course, there is other research as well that suggests that certain kinds of positive visualization, like reduce your energy and your motivation to achieve your goals. I think a lot of it comes down to whether you're visualizing process, which I think has lots of good benefits. And I think that's what the inner game books uh, sort of focus on. Or whether you are visualizing, you know, total success, the end point, people cheering, the goal, everything's worked out for you. Uh, and I think in those cases, that's what the study seems to suggest doesn't work so well. Right, because then you're setting yourself up for a potential disappointment. Well, and you're like, well, and because you're sort of endlessly focused on where you've got to get to, it actually, it actually makes it less like uh, one of these studies from uh, uh, Gabriel Oettingen and some colleagues at NYU. I don't know if you know her work was uh, they um, they got people dehydrated and then they had them visualize drinking a icy, refreshing glass of water. And the people who did that visualizing had a greater drop in energy levels than the others because it was as if they'd already convinced their brains that they'd achieved this goal uh, on a mental level. So they didn't need to achieve it in, in the real world. My ultimate defense against all of this, you know, the answer I come back at to your devil's advocate questions is, you know, I really think what I'm mainly doing is, is trying to reset a balance here. Again, though, I want to I play devil's advocate. Let's, let's take a more extreme example than the novel example. Let's say I'm a woman, I'm married, I have three kids, and my husband just cheated on me. And so I might think to myself, I, I should break up with him or I should make some drastic change to my marriage and my living situation. Or, you know, and I could think positively, yes, if I do that, this will work out for me and this will create a better life for me if I make some big change in my life. Or I could think negatively, oh, I can't do that. He provides half the paycheck. I have to put up with this and just be unhappy. Like, it seems like you're you're saying, well, okay, forget both of those kind of extremes and take action. But if someone's already thinking so negatively, they can't re I've seen this a lot. They can't really take action at that point. They're, they're too focused on the can't. Yeah. yeah, no, I see that. I see that. What I, what I disagree with is the implication, I guess, that what you can do when you're mired that deep in, in, in negative emotions is make some, in some other part of yourself, just make a choice to not think them anymore. And, and what actually seems far more fruitful in those situations, not to just give in to those emotions as in let them guide your behavior, but to, but, but to find an accommodation to, to live with them in your mind, you know, to, to, to be able to not feel that there's something terribly wrong with you because you're feeling low or depressed, to be able to sort of treat them, you know, the Buddhist ideas, treating emotions as weather patterns, learning to be a little bit more non-attached toward them. And then from that position, absolutely take whatever actions you need to take to get yourself out of, of, of bad situations, but not as a result of having forced your brain using willpower to, to feel good. Obviously, in that situation, you could just as easily, if that was possible, you could just as easily force your brain to think your circumstances were wonderful and then everything will be fine again, you know, but, but it just, the human brain just doesn't work like that. It's, it's too rebellious. I see. So in this case of this, the, the woman in the situation I described, she could think, okay, this really bad thing happened. It doesn't seem like I can change my situation, but I'm going to um, not let these negative feelings overwhelm me and I'm going to try to rationally 
figure out what my options are, as opposed to automatically thinking there is a way to change my circumstances, taking a more kind of rational view of it. Uh, as opposed to beating yourself up for feeling bad, right? Because the, because the, the implication of, of positive thinking in the sense that I'm using this term is always that negative thoughts should be banished, that there is something wrong if there are negative thoughts around and right. that the focus should be on replacing those negative thoughts and feelings with, with positive ones. And, and yeah, I just think there's just, there's just so many arguments against that. So, so to some extent, just by doing that, you're taking energy away from your brain that could be used towards solving your problem. Firstly, there's that. And then secondly, there's just, it just doesn't work, right? I mean, it's that don't think about a polar bear. If you really focus on the thoughts that you have and you sort of declare war on them and decide that you're going to stomp them out and replace them with, with better thoughts, it doesn't work. They, they get bigger and more salient and, and things get worse. And yet, you know, and so all the sort of Eastern spiritual traditions and a whole lot of modern therapy is a lot more about saying, can you find a way to coexist with these thoughts and emotions? Not with bad situations, which you may well need to change, but, but the first step there is not to beat yourself up for the fact that you have the full range of human emotions instead of only like one half of the... Of the right. There's a saying, um, when something bad happens to you, that's like the first arrow and it could wound you. But then when you beat yourself up about it, that's the second arrow and that could kill you. Yes, 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 exactly. And look, there's something else about happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking, which springs to my mind. I mean, I think this philosophy about about how to relate to negative emotions and situations is, is kind of a pretty universally good one. But I also think there's a big sector of the population uh, to whom, to which I definitely belong, who are just like, we're not like super smiley people who bounce around the world out of bed in the morning, feeling like life is absolutely fantastic. We're, we have a sort of, you know, appreciation for um, gallows humor and we, we see the benefits of pessimism. And sometimes we like sort of, you know, dwelling on the negative stuff a bit and i don't want to, those people to think that like therefore you have to give up on happiness and just be sort of resigned to your life being bad or something i feel like there's a there's totally a kind of happiness that is compatible with and, and success you know worldly success that is compatible with that kind of uh outlook and those are kind of my people on some level i guess <laughs> well well you, you kind of bring up almost an evolutionary point of view if our ancestors were happy uh, and positive a hundred percent of the time, then they would have then they would have died. We wouldn't have been born. Totally. And if you could, if when you felt fear, you could use positive thinking to shut off the fear, like you'd die very quickly. Right. The lion would eat you. Yeah, like right. you should. You should actually be really negative then and run. <laughs> of course, evolution, as it's often said, doesn't have any particular interest in us being happy. So, um, Th well, that's right too, because uh, you answered the question of what's positive thinking, but my first question for you is what is happiness in your mind? Well, 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 I mean, when I started writing this book, I thought, look, if I'm going to, if I'm going to suggest that there's a different route to happiness, I better, I better know what I mean by, by happiness as an endpoint. And I spent a few good few weeks in, uh, libraries trying to answer this question, but then I figured out that, you know, I guess philosophers hadn't solved it for millennia i was but, maybe not but, going by to the do. way don't you think that's a weird thing that you had to go to a library to find out what happiness was <laughs> well i failed so the useful job was the useful experience was that it wasn't there like why can't you just look at your i don't know how old you are but your 30 or 40 years of life experience to and isolate when you were happy and say okay i was happy then and i was unhappy here so this must be what happiness is i mean i think 
what I concluded. It was useful to go to the library in order to fail uh, <laughs> the library. I mean, the, I don't know what happiness is. I, I think that this idea about being more welcoming toward negative feelings and emotions, I think that is valid whether your view of happiness is just, you know, material wealth or it's becoming a Zen monk on the spiritual path, you know, whatever it is, you can try too hard and sabotage and sabotage things in, 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 in that way. I mean, so you, ju- you just gave three definitions, right? So you gave one that was happiness is the ability to deal with uh, negative emotions. Then you gave uh, happiness is goal oriented. Like I got a million dollars, so now I should be happy. And then, um, the third, I just totally forgot. But spiritual path. Yeah, yeah. So the happiness is is somehow presence and calm in the moment. Yeah, and I don't I don't have an answer to this. I, you know, it's it's very nice to say, and I I hope that I've come to understand that a lot of it that spiritual definition is is real. But I'm I haven't I haven't detached from wanting um, goal accomplishment and and uh, you know. Uh, enough money and, and and things like that. So it's uh, there's also know. there's also a fourth definition, which um, is is again the more evolutionary one, where happiness is simply when uh, dopamine, serotonin, or oxytocin is kind of shooting through your brain. And there, I think, get into an interesting thing, don't you? Because I do think I'm fairly confident in saying that happiness is not a constant state of excitement or right. a constant state of deep contentment which i guess are both of those are the ones that these uh you know the dopamine type uh explanations are and then actually something maybe it's not happiness maybe it's authenticity or growth or living a deep life or something but some of that absolutely has to do with being present through really crap times as well i came across a quote attributed to rilke the poet um the purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things which I, I don't know whether the attribution is correct, but that seems there's something very powerful there. You know, it's about big, the capacity to experience more and and not to have to shut down in the face of so many things. And, so, and- l- let me ask you about that quote, because part of your life, um, you know, as a, a columnist at The Guardian, you've interviewed many, many celebrities. And often a celebrity is someone who kind of reached their high point so now they're a celebrity, and then they kind of coast out the rest of their lives on that celebrity. So they kind of are not really following that quote. Like they're not kind of experiencing, let's say, more and more difficult problems in some sense. Right. As far as we know, right. maybe they are. I don't, I don't know. What what what's your experience? Like you like I read you had a great interview with Jerry Seinfeld, for instance, who's a obviously you know a great comedian. But but has you can argue has has reached his prime with his TV show. Well, he has a really. I come to him in a second because he's really interesting on this stuff. I think in general, yeah, you see this pattern, right? Where why do people go off the rails with drug addictions or, or sort of material? You know, just just going insane with their material acquisitions. It's you're sort of at the end of the road of the thing that you've that you've um, been focusing on. Then you get really interesting cases. I have a lot of criticisms of Oprah Winfrey and some of the some of the people to whom she's given her backing, but not to others. And I think a really interesting case of somebody who sort of did that material success thing and then actually took a really interesting step into, well, what next? How do you grow next? How do you find the next big thing to be defeated by? You know, I think that you do get occasionally get these super celebrities who do seem to be on real spiritual paths. Like who? Um, 
well, like Oprah, I think is a really interesting example. She like um, some of the some of the guests, as I say, some of the guests that she ended up having on her show were promoting all sorts of terrible pseudoscience and, and shouldn't be there. But but uh, but you know, Eckhart Tolle came to the world through uh, through Oprah Winfrey, and uh, that's a that's a pretty he's a basically a pretty good thing, I think, for our uh, understanding of of human happiness. Jerry Seinfeld is big into transcendental meditation. The thing that really stayed with me from that interview was the way he thinks about his work uh, as if he's an athlete. So he says, you know, it's not, I'm not an artist. I'm not sort of trying to pull off some work of genius. I'm an athlete and I have to keep myself in shape by showing up at little comedy clubs in New Jersey randomly, like he still does to this day. And, you know, testing myself and pushing and trying to stay in, keep this talent in shape. And, you know, there's definitely an argument that he hasn't done anything to match the, the TV show since. But but that's kind of a way, isn't it, of sort of making sure that you keep finding your edge. I guess also maybe we view it as a negative that he hasn't exceeded that, his prime. But maybe he views that as a problem to get over. And that's actually the problem he's, you know, trying to, to have success over. Right, right. I mean, you know, why? why who, who says he should do uh, uh, anything more um, sort of popular in a in a mass market way uh, than, than that? I mean, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Right. Like maybe his metric now is how do I get over that feeling that every day that goes by, people will remember me less? Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the, the trick may well not be to find something that people remember you for again. It might well be, as you say, to like, you know, become a person who's kind of fine with that. Yeah, interesting. And I, I like how he just goes to random comedy clubs in New Jersey. Did you go with him uh, to any of them? I didn't, but I've, uh, I've, I've heard various stories. And there was a big piece in the New York Times magazine uh, about, about this that, that did go uh, into those clubs. Yeah, so you're just there at some club having a drink and watching wannabe comedians. And then Jerry Seinfeld just uh, comes on stage and tries out a bit of material. Amazing. <laughs> it is interesting. I, I did, you, did you see um, the documentary he made, Comedian? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. And uh, I guess Orny Adams was kind of the guy uh, that he was often following around, uh, and they would perform back and forth. And uh, Orny somehow never kind of got over the top. And whereas for Jerry Seinfeld, it was so easy to just get on stage and perform. Yes. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting, like, I started reading, uh, this is my own confession, I started reading self-help probably when I was around 12 or 13 years old, and but I was reading, like, really bad self-help because I was only 12, <laughs> so I was reading things like, okay, how to have psychic powers or how to astral project, because I literally, my only goal was I wanted to see other girls naked, so I figured I could astral project and you know, fly around the world and do whatever I wanted. It's good to have an ambition. Yes, that was my goal. That was my positive thinking goal. But that did lead to kind of books about, it kind of automatically leads to books about meditation, books about Eastern philosophy. I mean, they were all sort of, you know, those pop psychic books are really just kind of extra watered down versions of Eastern philosophy. And so, so it led me to the kind of whole spectrum of, of self-help from, you know, those books to, 
you know, very, you know, what's considered Eastern philosophy books and, and the whole range in between. So what, what kind of self-help did you read along the path of, of researching for this book? I mean, if I'm honest, I started off in a position where I was already pretty skeptical, bordering on cynical about, you know, the real classics, how to win friends and influence people, and power of positive thinking and all. They're fascinating historical documents, but, but I was never sort of um, particularly impressed by them as, as, um, as uh, life advice. Then I got sort of kicked back into the, the Stoics and, you know, self-help before self-help, which I know you know about, which is, yes. which is it's just extraordinary to see that thousands of years ago people were grappling with exactly the same questions and sometimes coming up with, uh, with the same conclusions. I think a lot of the most powerful stuff for me has been stuff that is on some level influenced by by uh, Buddhism and Taoism and, and sort of Eastern approaches, not always explicitly, um, but uh, you know that those kinds of ways of relating to uh, bad times and 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 ways to action and, and and procrastination and things like that are really powerful in my in my experience. What's your definition of Stoicism? Because I mean, I think there's there's it's not that there's a full range of definitions of this, but I'm just curious. Everyone has something a little different to say. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, there's obviously a sort of small s uh, definition that is associated with the people kept bringing up because Brits are supposed to be stoic in this sense, which is, you know, the stiff upper lip and you just uh, you just get on with life and power through, even though you're hurting desperately inside, which is not a not a model for anybody's uh, uh, psychological health, really. And to be absolutely honest, in writing my book, I really plunged for the bits that I wanted to focus on, which are to do with, you know, the power of negative visualization, the incredible freedom and, and preparedness that you can get from really thinking carefully about how, how badly some plan, go, the way it sort of liberates you to, to move forward and try it out because you've already been there in your mind, you know, okay, this, I'm not going to die at the end of this. You're, you're saying there's kind of a power of negative thinking where I'm about to enter in a situation or let's say I'm thinking of quitting my job and starting a business. Um, outline all the worst case scenarios, realize that you can handle the worst case scenario. And in a sense, that's your, your, that's, that's, uh, kind of this stoic way of self help. Yeah, it's, listen, it's only one part of, of stoicism. And now we can talk about the others, but I mean, what I just love about this is, you know, and this is again a, 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 a divergence from positive thinking. We, we, the urge to reassure ourselves or our children or, or friends, you know, when something is not working out or when something is uncertain in the future, the urge to say, like, it's all going to be okay, you can do this, everything will be fine. It, it's very understandable, but it creates this, it's got this flip side, right? Which is the implic, it sort of it, it reinforces that idea that, that it would be really terrible if things didn't turn out fine and one of the sort of really great insights of stoicism i'm sort of getting it partly through albert ellis the great psychotherapist who died a few years back now but who i did speak to just shortly before he he died he'd say it's far better to realize that things could go completely wrong and it would be okay rather than to convince yourself that they are definitely going to go right because once you've got past that once you're like okay yeah this might all be total disaster, but but that's okay with me. The burden is lifted. You no longer have to endlessly replenish this optimism tank and say like, oh, no, I'm really going to manage this. I'm really going to manage this. You can just go forward and try it. And it's just a weight off your 
shoulders. And I think that is, you know, I think that's quite a, that's quite a stoic idea. They, they had all sorts of quite weird beliefs as well, but you know. So. Let's go through that exercise for a second. So we talked earlier, you're working on a new book proposal. I'm working on a new book as well. Let's say you work on this new book proposal and you put a lot of time and effort into it and nobody bites and you, you no, nobody says this is a book worthy of us publishing. How would you react to that? Well, I'm sure I'd be really upset and annoyed. I mean, I, I, <laughs> just, just in case anyone thinks I've sort of uh, <laughs> got this sort of stuff all, all, all worked out. I mean, this is a slightly different question because I was talking before about the future, looking at fa- the potential for failure in the future. And this would be an example of present moment experience of, of, of failure. I think that, you know, the, 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 there's a sort of instinctive reaction in that context to say, this must be rubbish. I'm not going to keep trying other publishers. I'm not going to explore self-publishing. I'm not going to go back and make some revisions because it's just like I've just been defeated by, by circumstances. And I think in that circumstance, if you're the kind of person who says, this has got to work out, like I've got to sell this for a lot of money to a really big publisher, that's going to paralyze you when it comes to exploring other paths or thinking about self-publishing or thinking about making changes. You know, you're going to be like, it's going to be so critical that you succeed that you are going to be frozen in place if you are the kind of person who can, can say instead, you know, this, this is important to me, but it's not, it's not my full identity. You know, it's, it's a thing that would be nice to make happen then I feel like you've just got there's much more energy than flowing into trying to make it a, an actual success. But, yeah. it, it seems like an extreme example of this is the story of Apollo 13, you know, where they're, they're going to the moon, and obviously their identity is going to be wrapped around to the fact that, uh, at least for two of them, they're going to land and walk on the moon. But then something goes wrong, and not only is their lifelong dream totally crushed, but now they have to figure out how to live, and, that, and it's unclear that they're going to live, and they have and they have to really focus on the present moment in order to live. Yes, yes, the crises clarify in a really um, in a in a weirdly in a weirdly helpful way. I guess. Yeah, sorry, I guess I don't see exactly how it connected to the, the stoic point. Well, the fact that the worst case scenario not only happened in terms of their goals, but it could even happen in terms of their lives, and so. They had to quickly put aside the fact they couldn't sit around thinking, oh, gosh, we're not going to walk on the moon. They had to really start exploring all of the alternatives to living. Yeah. And not just one alternative. They had to really figure it out. They had to solve a puzzle. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and there just isn't time. I mean, it's a very extreme example. I'm not sure I can really get my mind around how it would, what it would be like to be, uh, to be in that context. But, you know. There's so many testimonials of people facing life or death situations for whom things that are not important fall away. And you are simply looking at the, the practical, rational routes to the things you need to, the, 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 the thing you need to try to achieve instead of trying to sort of feel good about the chances. Yeah, I guess that's, the, that's an important, uh, important distinction there. So, but I'm going to take it to like this morning, I wake up and maybe my first thought might be, Oh gosh, you know, another day, or maybe I was afraid. Uh, what, what if I don't have anything to write about? Or maybe I was thinking about some negative situation I had to deal with. Sometimes then I'm going I'm to get back to the power of positive thinking. Sometimes it helps to have, uh, not necessarily an affirmation, but just a way to kind of boost yourself up a little bit. Yeah. I'm not going to like tell anyone who manages to use a kind of positive slogan and, and it works for them uh, to say, um, 
you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You should, you should definitely be thinking negative things. I think it's certainly very limited. I think the sort of boost that, that those affirmations can provide, it doesn't go, it doesn't go very deep. I think people with kind of low self-esteem already thinking pretty bad things about themselves. There's definitely some evidence that can make things worse. But, you know, I have similar things for myself. It's just that they tend to be, they, they tend to sound like they're really gloomy on some level. You know, they are, they are to do with how emotions can't, you're not going to change your emotions through your will. So, so, but, but action is the way to change them. And then I'll get out of bed because, because action makes you feel good. So you're waking up and you're thinking these negative things. What would you tell yourself to get yourself out of bed? I mean, I don't always follow my own advice. I think if I was, what I was doing, I would sort of, I would attempt to feel these emotions as fully as I could. I would attempt to see that they weren't me, that they didn't define me. And I would be telling myself that, well, as a, the slogan that is coming to mind now comes from uh, Shoma Morita, who's a Japanese, was a Japanese psychotherapist who was very much into this perspective. And the quote, I don't have exactly to hand, but it's basically like, give up on yourself. Just be the best sort of, you know, flawed person who doesn't who thinks you're i mean actually i'm going to look it up now because it's so good but he's basically saying you know, i love the idea of this he's let me let me let me get it now because it's, it's sort of one of my uh, watch words um and it's that it's all to do with that here it is he says give up on yourself begin taking action now while being neurotic or imperfect or a procrastinator or unhealthy or lazy or any other label by which you inaccurately describe yourself Go ahead and be the best imperfect person you can be and get started on those things you want to accomplish before you die. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I'm going to steal that in my next blog post, maybe. You are super welcome. <laughs> uh, as I say, it's not me. Show me Marita. But, um, yeah, no yeah. one's going to know who that is. It'll be no problem to steal <laughs> Give that. Give up on yourself. Stop trying to win this war of emotions. And, you know, uh, the, the battle is won by putting one foot in front of the other, I think. Yeah. Let's take a look at all of this, though, like author by author. So so the best self-help authors of the past century, like take Napoleon Hill, for instance, Think and Grow Rich. What, what would you say about that book? These are, these are historical documents, right? So there are times in the culture when some of these things can, can have, a, can have a, a useful purpose and can sort of make people realize that the sort of stifling norms of their community or the prevailing mood economic mood of the times is something that they can they can resist you know and give you a strengthen your spine a, a little bit basically for me here now and i think for lots of people here now in 2015 that those kinds of classic books are pretty much recipes for frustration they play straight into this idea that you're going to that you're going to focus your effort and your energies on controlling how you think and how you feel they set you up for feeling worse when it doesn't work because then it makes it feel like it's, you know, you, you, you can't even do the positive thinking right. So you're, you're, you're even more of a, of a failure. And so I don't think personally that they're, 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 much, they're much use. I think that that sort of tolerance for ambiguity, for books like, if you want a classic, I mean, I'll go in the order you give me them, but Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. That is a great book. Feel, I, I don't know that one. Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway? By Susan Jeffers, um, okay. which is a sort of classic Slightly cliched, slightly hokey, you know, um, it's one that cynical people like me maybe like to laugh about. But the message there is fantastic, right? That is not make yourself fearless. That is uh, feel the fear and, and, and do it anyway. And, oh, and wrote, it's a, it sounds similar to the Marita therapy you were talking about. 
Right, 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 right. And she wrote another book called Embracing Uncertainty, which is makes the brilliant point that, you know, we spend so much of our lives sort of subconsciously trying to make things feel certain. And if you actually were given a list of every single thing that was going to happen for the rest of your life until you died, even if they were all good things, that would be absolutely terrible. Like, you know, all the life, all the juice would have gone out of life if you had that. So actually, you might tell yourself you don't like uncertainty, but you would hate absolute certainty a lot more. So that, that's a book I'm very fond of. But sorry, I don't know if you wanted to go through specific. No, no, no. Titles. Throw some other some other writers and authors, good and bad. Like, And there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the good <laughs> is like what you just mentioned um, with Susan Jeffries, is her name? Uh, Jeffers. Jeffers. Yeah. And so the bad might be Napoleon Hill, the thing in Grow Rich, but I say bad only in the sense that he probably was sincere when he wrote it, and it was probably good for his times, which were around, you know, after the Depression and so yeah, on. Exactly, exactly, and yeah. then there's the ugly, which is self-help that is insincere, but out there to make money. Right, and I'm trying to think if I can even think of anybody who I honestly think is insincere, because I think an awful lot of people who I don't have a lot of time for are probably very sincere. Um, uh, there's a kind of genre, I suppose, of of celebrity self-help book where you just think this person has wealth and fame for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they're really good at acting or sports. Maybe it's just luck. Maybe they got a whole lot of lucky breaks in life. But whatever it is, it isn't necessarily something that they know how to turn into lessons that are applicable to to anyone else. Um, um, there's that old Norm MacDonald joke about a real book that um, – a real book about a sort of nine-step plan for success, I think was the subtitle, but that um, Oprah Winfrey's boyfriend, Stedman Graham, published. The Norm MacDonald line is that if, if, you're, uh, if step one is become Oprah Winfrey's boyfriend, then the other eight steps are probably just hang around. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there, there are people who you just think that there's no reason to believe that you would have achieved. Um, but you know what, though? He might be sincere. So it still might be... Yeah, and his book might be good or bad. We don't know, but he might be he he might be still sincere about it. Whereas, what do you think about things like, and we won't have to name any names, but like let's say law of attraction sort of books. Ah, uh, I mean, the sincerity question is fascinating. There, I am. I'm. I'm. I'm a long time on the record critic of the the secret, so I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind naming names, but it's really hard to tell with some of that. Stuff. I think a, a place that it crosses over for me and really leaves a very bad taste is some of the people involved in that world who have turned them into sort of pretty unethical kinds of models for, for marketing and making money out of it, you know, that, that are pretty dubious and, and only sort of uh, work by convincing, you become rich by convincing lots of other people that if they give you money, they'll become rich. And it sort of extends onwards, downwards in a, uh, in a shape alarmingly resembling a pyramid. Sincerity is difficult there. I mean, I think a lot of it is absolute, is absolute nonsense, but, 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 but that doesn't mean people don't believe it. I, I am really uh, not a fan of The Secret either. Like, I think, you know, again, it's why should anyone be entitled to uh, tickets to a free trip to Mexico just because they believed that that should appear in their mailbox? Like, that strikes me as ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it is ridiculous. I think what it's often doing is taking some sort of some fairly out there new age or you know somewhat Buddhist influenced ideas that are not that I'm willing to talk about about cosmic consciousness and and the lack of boundaries between all of us. They're not very scientific, but I don't think they're necessarily flatly absurd. 
And then it's yoking them to this version of, of, of happiness that is so narrow and so shallow and is so, there's a problem with any approach to happiness or to therapy or lots of other things that, that, that just assumes that you know from the beginning what you want. Because my experience of being on this kind of journey is that the real process is in discovering what it is you really wanted and, and what, and is actually in sort of reconsidering your, your goals and your philosophies of happiness instead of just finding the new method to get the thing that you already knew all along. Well, it's, in, it's interesting because you bring this up. You, you write a lot about writing. And um, you mentioned a quote from the novelist uh, Rick Moody, who's talking about his writing routines. The quote he said was, there's no one process. As soon as I imagine some approach to generating work as foolproof, it becomes suddenly worthless to me and I have to start over. I love that. I don't think it's just um, about writing processes either. I think it was a real revelation to me when I realized that, you know, whatever productivity technique I was using, whatever system I was using at the moment to organize my work or whatever sort of philosophy I was trying to have guide my my life or whatever approach I was going to take towards being a good partner in my relationship. Or, you know, I didn't have to find the one that was going to last forever. And actually, it's pretty damaging and stressful if you do tell yourself you, you've got to find that. And and they can sort of cycle in and out. And for six months, I will only be thinking about one approach. And then six months, it'll be another one. And that won't mean necessarily that the one I'm leaving behind was somehow worse or bad. It's just that, you know, I think the quest for the one perfect system is uh, a certain kind of person, a certain kind of mindset to which I, from which I probably suffer, is very prone to that kind of you know, I'm going to find the thing once and for all that makes everything else easy thereafter. Well, and let me ask you this, because this is a problem I often have, and maybe you have it also. We both write, and when I hit publish on something, I'm usually a little bit scared. Like, will people like what I write? And I get disappointed in myself, and then I have to deal with it and figure out ways to deal with it. I get disappointed in myself if I think people don't like what I write. Now, not I don't get disappointed in myself if it's controversial and people are upset or angry or whatever, but if just people ignore it. You know, ignoring you is the worst kind of way people could hate you. I, I feel a little bad and I have to deal with it. Like, how, how do you react to that? I mean, I definitely agree with you that that sort of getting a hostile reaction can often feel much better than, than getting... Uh, and getting no reaction at all. I guess one thing that's so good about the the media and writing and landscape that we're that we're in now is that there are all these opportunities for. Um, you can really see that it's a sort of long game that involves lots and lots of different installments. It's never too long after one that doesn't float anybody's boat. It's never too long until the next one is uh, is, is along. And I think you know in the days when. There are big downsides to this, right? Like you don't get time to write your damn books because you're too busy writing shorter things. But a big advantage of, of this environment is that you can get a sort of general sense of what's resonating and, what, and what's working. And things, you know, the, the day after nobody, write, nobody seems to read the blog post you've done, somebody will email you about a blog post you wrote a year ago with this most touching kind of words about, about, the, role it, about the role it had in there life or something like that. So I think that is a really, um, really great thing about so this is not really advice, I suppose. It's just a sort of, uh, or a, it's not really a method for dealing with it. It's just a sort of fact about that. Uh, 
the media ecology that we're uh, no, but it's true. And I, uh, but I wonder, like you say, there's always kind of the next one that you're going to write. And, and so then people will forget the other ones. Well, let's say you write like 10 posts in a row that are, you know, just something's going on in your life and you write 10 articles in a row that are just not good. Uh, and you know, there's always this feeling, no matter what area of life you're in, you're only as good as your last X. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and so you write a bunch of articles that you feel are like not up to your par. Uh, do you feel like you could fall off the cliff a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. And I try to remind myself of very strange phenomena that I've noticed in my own writing, such as if I go back and look at something I wrote a year ago or more, I always think, I almost always think it's kind of pretty good. Like, you know, this guy was quite a good writer. The next thought that comes up is, ah, oh, that just shows I've got a lot worse right. than the intervening year but I've now been doing this for much more than a year so I know that that's not what's happening what's happening is that when you are no longer aware of the you know the sausage being made as they say when you when you're not aware of the of the sort of chaos and randomness that goes into your writing work because all you're you're seeing it from the outside as it were um it just looks a lot more professional and 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 it looks a lot more like together because you're 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 now in a sort of third person relationship to the to the to the author of that of that piece so you know i think it, it it's a again you know it's not a not some sort of watertight solution to the issue i think as writers we're always going to be uh, neurotic and and, and self questioning but but after a while you begin to see oh yeah no i always think this now and then I always don't think it again a bit later or things get discovered later or, you know, my book seems to be like it reached a lot of people quite a few months after any sort of marketing attempts to get it to people. So, you know, things like that are just like you, you begin to see that like it, it all comes out OK in the end, I guess. Well, you know, I guess also it reminds me of, of Seinfeld, like he does not want to get worse as a comedian. So he exercises that comedian muscle as much as he can so so no matter what happens like his career he doesn't worry about career because that's done but he doesn't want to get worse as a comedian he still checks the box every day his famous chain right exactly exactly i asked him about that by the way and he said like it's so bizarre that anyone ever thought that was useful it's just so dumb and stupid he thought um and yet but he uses it yeah well yeah no absolutely he just can't believe that anyone would think it was valuable to 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 hear about um, the, the other yeah. thing he said in his interview with you, which is related to something we just discussed a little earlier, in terms of like, if you think of a process that's your perfect process, he said about relationships, relationships don't work, but comedians are in long marriages because they're smart. <laughs> and so they know that in general, relationships don't work. So you might as well stay uh, in the best relationship you can. Right. Instead of being having your life ruined by this by this perfectionistic fantasy that you never find that, that against which you you deem everything else that you experience uh, to be uh, in, insufficient. Yeah. Very wise, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that combined with the fact that he meditates then for 20 minutes a day or however long it is a day. He said to you he could talk to you for the whole interview about meditation, which I thought was interesting. Him and Howard Stern. Yeah, he had to be drawn a little bit on the on the TM stuff, but uh, it's it's basically yeah, it's twenty minutes twice a day, repeating a, a mantra to yourself, a secret mantra that. Uh, so I don't know his, and I don't think that if you did know his, it would make you into Jerry Seinfeld. But um, he said, you know, like once or twice every year, you um, 
you have a night's sleep that's really, really good and you wake up feeling totally refreshed, but you never do that the rest of the time because your life gets in the way. And I sort of, I, I sort of empathize with that. And he's like, well, you know, meditation is like that kind of rest almost every time you do it to him, he thought. So that's not a- quite my experience of meditation, but a very powerful uh, way of talking about it. Well, it's interesting. I'm I'm not a believer that you should spend $1,500 to learn a meditation technique. But just in the past week, I've read about him, Howard Stern, Tim Ferriss, and Brian Koppelman, who's a screenwriter who's been on my podcast. All of them have talked about uh, the benefits of of meditation in their lives, and specifically TM, but I'll, I'll just make it more broadly meditation. I will say, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And I, you know, in the book, I went off and did a week's silent retreat in Massachusetts that was kind of pretty... Uh, extraordinary to me. I, I will say this, I have done one, not TM, but I did do one meditation uh, thing that did cost a proper amount of money, uh, whereas most of them are sort of based on generosity and donations. And whatever you make of that, it's quite a good commitment mechanism because once you've put down the money, you really don't want to be the sucker who gives up the very next day. And so it's quite a surprisingly good way of making yourself keep it uh, keep it going for a while. It didn't last uh, indefinitely, but uh, but certainly a lot longer because you'd sort of put the money down. So I don't know. I doubt that. I doubt that registers with Jerry Seinfeld, given what I assume to be his his wealth. But uh, but it's sometimes that can work quite, quite in quite a clever way. You know, you had one interesting article, um, and it's interesting because it's about being interesting. It's called How to Be Interesting and Why the Best Bits of Life Are More Than Interesting. You had an interesting description at the end by Eckhart Tolle, which is, you know, the sunset is this incredible miracle that happens every day, but no one's really that interested in it. We're always interested in, like, whatever is kind of the latest trending thing on Twitter or, you know, the latest, you know, scientific theories that are extreme um, what's, what's your stance on interestingness? Well, this was, came originally, I've got to give credit where it's due from a, from a paper published in the seventies called that's interesting, a sociology paper by a guy called Murray Davis, which was surfaced by, um, Adam Grant, who you I'm sure are uh, aware of the author of uh, the book yeah, give and take. He's um, been on, he's been on the podcast. Excellent. Um, and he was using it just to add to the number of names here to explain some of the appeal of, uh, the, the books of Malcolm Gladwell. So there you go. The idea of this original paper is that, you know, the theories that have, that have done really successfully in intellectual history, Freudianism or Marxism or certain, uh, uh, probably libertarianism would count. Certainly, they don't succeed because they're true accounts of how humans work or how society works. They succeed because they're really interesting accounts of, of, uh, of how society works. They, se- they make you see or they, they make the suggestion that, you know, something that you thought was just th- at your time in history has actually been the same throughout history or the other way around, something you thought was the same throughout history is actually only happening in your time or that a collective phenomenon is individual or an individual phenomenon is collective. They sort of, they give you a different lens on, on stuff uh, so that, you know, the tipping point is a great example of this because it sort of says, ha, huh, okay, not all phenomena spread in a linear way. They sometimes spread like epidemics. So products and political ideas and, and uh, social norms, they can spread in these kind of interesting ways. Anyway. Well, well, but it's interesting. Two points about that. One is all of those that you mention are, are kind of self-helpish. So it's not like a biography 
of the football coach, Vince Lombardi, you would mention as interesting, even though that might be interesting to a certain group of people. All of those people you mentioned and, and all of the people that, you know, Murray Davis mentions, like, you know, Marx and Freud and so on, they're all trying to make a model of the human condition that we can use to explain our lives and try to make our lives or our society better. So in that sense, they're interesting also. Right. No, and actually this paper ends. It's very, uh, it sounds, it's almost as if you'd, you'd read it because the paper that I'm talking about ends by saying the other thing it's got to have is something that changes people's life practices in some way. You know, you, it, it's no good being told that everything is other than how you thought it was if that has no effect on what you should do uh, when you get up tomorrow. Uh, so, so that's also crucial for, for interestingness. And hey, there's nothing wrong with interestingness. It doesn't mean that a theory is wrong just because it's interesting. But well, I think uh, what... Sorry, you go ahead. Sorry, I keep interrupting. I was just going to close up, come back around to the Eckhart Tolle point. You know, that I was trying to end by saying is that actually the things that are the most fulfilling and absorbing, whether that's time spent in nature or in a sort of deep relationship with other humans or, or spiritual practices, whatever they're going to be, they're not actually very interesting. Uh, I think Tolle says that, you know, like doing a PhD in the sunset on the sunset, that might be interesting, but, but, but the sunset isn't interesting. And then actually you have to sort of go beyond something that your mind can sort of chew on. That's great and very entertaining and useful and, and whatever. But, but there's another level beyond that, which is where the mind sort of quietens down again and stops chewing and you're just sort of present in the presence of a, of a mystery. I guess there's, there's so many interesting things I want to unpack from this. So I'll, I'll try to do it quickly. But the first is, you know, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell and the tipping point, And that's a great example of a case where he describes this phenomenon that products, let's call them, you know, like, like beanie babies or whatever. Well, suddenly they'll sell, they'll sell and then suddenly have this tipping point where they'll sell millions. And he show, yeah. sort of shows example after example of products that hit a tipping point. But what I found about that book, as opposed to his book Outliers, uh, what I found from the tipping point is he doesn't really give a method for getting to the tipping point. He just says that it exists. So I didn't really kind of find, um, I kind of wanted to find a method from it. And every CEO who bought the book sort of wanted a method. Yeah. But there was no method in there. As opposed to Outliers, he just plainly states, and it wasn't even his theory, but he plainly states, put in 10,000 hours of dedicated practice and you're going to be world class at what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that he is pretty much single-handedly responsible for launching a genre of publishing. And The Tipping Point was its, was its beginning. And a lot of it, I think, is, is based on people wanting practical advice, but not always being prepared to... Firstly, they want smart advice. They don't want sort of dumb self-help. And secondly, they may be a little bit embarrassed, actually, about just seeking out books that say called How to Be a Success at Things. Um, I think as that genre has grown and as Gladwell has written more of them himself, you know, it's starting to find its feet. And it's great. It's become a lot less weirdly embarrassing to be seen reading a book that tells you how to do things, you know. Um, and so, which is, which is helpful for me on two counts because I sort of write that stuff and I kind of want to read it. So, uh, but, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. There isn't always a, a, a practical takeaway, uh, from, from those ideas. Yeah. And you know, the other interesting thing there is, um, you know, let's say the difference between, um, all these people who are interesting and who are providing these models for the world and an Eckhart Tolle who talks about, 
the sunset and just being calm in the sunset. Like obviously we 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 all realize the benefits in life that oh I wish I was just calm all the time. But at the same time we're torn because we want to do things that are interesting in life. We want to be you know when you're young you think to yourself I want to be famous or I want to be rich or I want to write like the best-selling book of all time. You, you think to yourself, I'll be happy if I'm extremely interesting to everybody else. But at the same time, we sort of think, um, you know, there's this huge benefit to being calm all the time. How do you kind of um, sort of combine these two differing, I would say, goals, say? I, I don't think they are mutually exclusive. I mean, for most people. I think a lot of people, probably I'm one of them, I, there may be some people who I'm not who can just like be be born with such you know spiritual wisdom that uh, that they don't seek anything other than just you know pure presence and calm and contentment. I think for lots of people, you sort of have to try really hard to be special to realize the joy of being ordinary or that there are benefits to to to, to being ordinary. You have to sort of try to make these amazing projects work and often succeed and they give a lot of pleasure, you know, but in order to see that beyond them to the, to the fact that, you know, I think ultimately that, that Tolle idea about just being there in the presence of the sunset is, you know, it is ultimately the, the thing to keep on your horizon. I don't think it means you're doing something wrong by, uh, trying to, trying to build stuff and make stuff and, 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 uh, and have a fascinating and interesting time. I just, um, was reading a really interesting little book called The Art of Taking Action by a guy called Greg Kreck, Kretsch, I don't know how it's pronounced, K-R-E-C-H, which is all about, like, he's an expert in various sort of Eastern spiritual approaches, but this is all about this idea of, like, we shouldn't just think about those traditions as being about passively sitting on a cushion, watching your breath. Like, they are about how to take action as well. And actually adopting some of those mindsets are some of the most powerful ways you know and we've hinted at this in our conversation i think today but you know to be calm in the face of 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 the storm of emotions or whatever is actually a really great way to go and get stuff done as well as it doesn't all have to be about um sitting there with a beatific smile on your face and and not desiring anything and so to to get to that point does he suggest for instance uh you know, like one one Eastern approach to get to that point is to sit there and notice, you know, these negative emotions, but not try, but just notice them, not try to, like you said earlier, not try to suppress them or do away with them. Right. I mean, he's he's actually a, a, a big practitioner of, of the Marita approach that we talked about earlier, you know, give up on yourself. So, yeah, it's absolutely it's about it's about once you can accommodate those those emotions, once you're sort of OK when they're there, it's actually a kind of, you know, uh, to be able to tolerate discomfort in that way is is pretty much a superpower. I'm sure you agree with that. I mean, yeah, no, I love I love this approach. Again, I'm going to totally steal it <laughs> in a variety of ways. I mean, we we've mentioned a, a bunch of very good books. Uh, you talked earlier about Albert Ellis. Uh, I've read his book, A Guide to Rational Living, which is which is really excellent. You know, Eckhart Tolle, of course, The Power of of Now, uh, the Merida books well, is there one book in particular i recommend this book i mean you can get a marita's original work but i recommend this book the art of taking action by greg Kretsch. greg Kretsch. okay yeah. so, so so the art of taking action there's your book the antidote uh let me get the let me get the subtitle up the antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking 
what other what other books did we talk about that were oh Susan Jeffers book feel fear and do it anyway uh, I think um, what books would you absolutely not recommend <laughs> <laughs> the secret the power whatever the most recent one is called um, I, I I think those uh, those law of attraction books can be can be safely put to one side. And, you know, I think those classics, Power of Positive Thinking, Think and Grow Rich, Win Friends and Influence People, their hearts are in the right place. Maybe it's useful, but I think they're fundamentally sort of not particularly, uh, not, not particularly well, well suited to, to where we find ourselves now. A book that I love that keeps coming up, in, a book about writing is um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which I, I bet you've heard of because it's a, a great sort of wise guide to to writing but not just writing really yes you know and it's funny on uh my other podcast that i do with my wife we had an argument because i like bird by bird she doesn't and we had this argument because a friend of ours tucker max who's written a bunch of best-selling books he recommends all of these writing books but he hates bird by bird (laughs) because i guess the reality is her book is a little bit more philosophical and she hasn't written a best-selling book so so there's the criticism there that she's she's not she's not necessarily teaching about writing, but she's teaching about other ways of of living. Yeah, listen, I mean, I don't know what her bank account looks like. She seems to have a very successful life in many senses of the term. So you know, I'm I'm kind of open to philosophy from such people. There is always a problem, isn't there? If what you really want to do is be number one on the New York Times list, it's pretty hard to take advice on that from someone who, uh, who, uh, who hasn't, you know, spent plenty of time there themselves. Stephen King wrote a good book on writing. Uh, yes. That's what you want. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that, that was Tucker's favorite. That's also my favorite writing book, but I do, I actually like bird by bird quite a bit. I also think that we need to slightly disconnect the idea of the giver of advice from the, from the advice, you know, um, uh, not just that someone doesn't need to be some huge commercial success to be a deliverer of, of, of good advice but you know apart from anything else i think i am a channel for a lot of very good advice but it doesn't mean i've successfully internalized it all and follow it uh perfectly in my in my own uh, in my own life but that doesn't make it bad advice you know it, it's true though like do you ever get to a point where you're sort of feeling bad about something and it's almost like an, you've been feeling bad all day and it's almost to the point where it's reaching like an obsession. And then you say, you know, I write all day long about self-help and advice and, and whatever. And here I can't even follow my own advice. Does that help you bring you back to following your advice? Uh, often it does. You know, when I suddenly realize that the answer to what I'm going through is something I wrote in my book a couple of years ago, like that's kind of humbling. Um, what I really think uh, more seriously, I guess, is we're now in a very nice part time, I think, a very good time in the culture when it comes to advice, which is lots and lots of people feel free to pass on what lessons they've learned. Um, people feel uninhibited about discussing things that might work. We're not, we don't, and, and equally, I, don't, I think people have a very realistic idea about who's, who's delivering that advice. So I don't, I'm not keen on gurus who set themselves up as as sort of flawless exemplars of things. I think the idea that advice is like a conversation among equals and that we've got things to learn from each other and then we have to go back and learn the thing that we were giving out as advice uh, six months ago. I think that's a good situation. I think it's a very sort of, you know, all of us doing 
life philosophy together. I think it's, I think it's great. I, I, I wouldn't want to return to a situation where you had a few people pretending to be perfect and the rest of us all kneeling at their, uh, at their feet. Well, it's interesting because two points about that. One is um, Buddha, you know, who I think is, you know, not only was a very good self-help guy for his time. He was but, a pretty good guy all around, yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he even says, look, don't believe me. Try, uh, this works for me, but why don't you go out and try this for yourself and see if it works for you? So, which, which is a great marketing technique. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's much better that way, much, uh, much uh, healthier, healthier situation. You know, the other, the other thing I want to point out is that there are so many kind of like, there's all these sites that aggregate these kind of self-help sort of blogs in, in business or health or whatever, and the author is invisible. So he might say, you know, uh, five techniques to rise up the corporate ladder, but you never see how the author uh, dealt with the hardships of rising up the corporate ladder. So I agree with you. You need to kind of put yourself in the story if you're going to. Well, you uh, and that's why I love so much of your stuff because you've taken this to a sort of. Um, I hope I'm not going to insult you here. I hope I'm going to compliment <laughs> as, as intended. But like you know, you've taken this to a to a high level. Nobody could read your work and think that what your life had been was a perfect, unbroken ascent up a up a perfect trend line of you know right thing getting better and better and better. And it's amazing how many people would have you believe that about their lives. Or maybe they had one crisis where they hit rock bottom, and then after that, they became a self-help guru and everything was perfect. But um, the sort of multiple bottom hittings, as it were, <laughs> um, that, uh, that, you've, that you've written about, I think that's just like, you know, I'd far rather take advice from someone who was going to tell me about that than someone who was, who was going to claim otherwise. Right, although then you go to the extreme, like... Uh... You know, you, you mentioned in The Antidote, um, you visited Eckhart Tolle at his home in Vancouver. And I, I really like his book, The Power of Now. And you really couldn't break him down at all. <laughs> like, he, he, he seemed like the real deal to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, I think, I think he is what he, what he, what he says he is. Um, and which is not, by the way, that's the other thing about The Power of Now. Like, if you really read that book looking for the pseudoscience and the nonsense. There are two or three pages where I wish he hadn't used certain phrases and he talks about cosmic vibrations or, or, or women being more in touch with enlightenment than men. And you're just like, well, what's your basis for these? And it's a little bit dubious, but the vast majority of it is not pseudoscience because it is not pretending to be science. It is just saying, look inside, again, you know, see if this resonates for you. And if this way of thinking about your inner life uh, you know, you might find it really powerful. And so uh, I think people sometimes mischaracterize the claims that people like him are making. They're not, he's not claiming that uh, if you think really hard about a Lamborghini, you'll, you'll get one. You know, that, it's not that kind of stuff at all. It's just a sort of exercise in introspection. Yeah, that can be really helpful. Well, Oliver, this has been really enlightening. You've given me not only a whole bunch of books to read, but an, an entire <laughs> list of books to steal from. So I, I thank you for that. And I, I do have to say, I've really enjoyed your book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. I really thought, I when I first picked it up, I thought it was just going to be trashing self-help, but I, it really was like a good sort of coverage uh, coverage of the entire spectrum of self-help and your not only what you think but your exploration into it which i which again i like it when 
you know, it's this Gladwellian approach where you put yourself into the story. I'm, and, I'm glad you saw that. I really didn't want it to just be destructive. You know, I wanted to take down some things, but then I wanted to offer something constructive uh, in, in their place. Yeah. No, no, it's really uh, a worthwhile book to read for anybody who really is interested in the topic of, of bettering their life, which ho- hopefully we all are. I think, I think many of the listeners to this podcast are. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It gave, gave me a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much for having me on. It was, a, it was an excellent, very enjoyable conversation. I'm, I really enjoyed it too. Thanks, Oliver. Bye. Thanks. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.